I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn to that passage or get your device and turn on to that passage. It's a new day in Bible reading, isn't it? We've got to keep up with technology. I know you won't be double dipping, multitasking during the sermon though, right? Assure me that you won't if you've got a mobile device, right? God is watching. Fear the wrath and retribution of Robert and his God. I'm breathing threats already. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll tell you what verse. We won't put it up yet, but just if you would, get there. And like last week, we isolated a passage. If you were here, we looked at Psalm 127 and just walked through a couple of really important uh, passages as it relates to life and what kind of life we're living. And today, in the next couple of weeks, we are just simply going to kind of have what we call in the preaching world a standalone sermon. Hopefully, when the sermon's over, I won't be standing here alone. But it's just a standalone sermon as is it's not a part of a series and we're excited want to get you thinking about labor day right after that in the first sunday in september as small groups launch off get started people reconvening new groups forming all that most of our groups will be following along with our sermon series and it's going to be called are you satisfied an ecclesiastes study and we're going to walk through this great book of ecclesiastes don't know if you know much about it this uh, ancient writing speaks so well to modern life, uh, existential questions about the horizontal life versus the vertical life, life under the sun. We'll look at themes like finding our satisfaction and pleasure in work and in relationships and success. And we'll look at the reality of envy and growing old and the seasons of life and just a lot of great stuff in this book. Terribly excited about it. Just want you to be looking forward to that. First Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to get there in a second. You're already looking down. I threw you off one more time, didn't I? Let me, uh, let, me enter, let, me, let me channel my inner flight attendant uh, for just a moment. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, th- your pilot has turned off or turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. Please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Make sure your seatbelt and tray table are in the full upright lock position. If you're seated next to an emergency exit, please read carefully the instructions located by your seat. If you're unable to or uh, unwilling to perform the functions, ask a flight attendant to reseat you. My favorite part, in the unlikely event of a water landing, an oxygen mask will automatically appear in front of you. To start the flow of oxygen, pull the mask towards you, place it firmly over your nose and mouth, secure the elastic band, breathe normally. If you're traveling with a small child or someone who needs assistance, secure your mask first, then assist uh, the other passenger. At this time, we request that all cell phones, laptops, and portable devices be turned off as these items might interfere with the navigational and communication equipment of the aircraft. We remind you this is a non-smoking flight. Smoking is prohibited on the entire aircraft, including the laboratories. Tampering with, disabling, or destroying the laboratory smoke detectors is prohibited by law. That is, guys, what you call a tough message environment. You recognize that? You frequent flyers. You recognize any of that. But look, I know what you do if you fly a little bit like I do, especially those who fly a lot. You don't pay attention to that, do you? When that flight attendant who's paid well, who loves you and cares about you, who wants to ensure your safety, when she uh, grabs that microphone and she's compelled by her own conscience and the Federal Aviation Administration, the National Transportation Safety Board, she's telling you something that, that you need to know. But I've noticed that most of us just, we look away, don't we? We're, we're on our laptops, we're on our cell phones, we're on those portable devices. We're really not thinking about that. I had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to, to speak to some young seminarians, some young, mostly men, who will probably do this one day. They'll stand up and preach regularly before a congregation. And I told them that preachers in many ways are like flight attendants. We got a really important message. 
but nobody seems to be listening at times. It's a tough message environment. We want to tell people, hey, be careful. We all want to be safe. We want to get out alive. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to put a couple of quick passages on the board for us. Hebrews chapter 2 says, therefore, we must pay, listen to this, we must pay closer attention to the words that we have heard so that what? So that we won't drift away. Next passage. Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of him on us all. 2 Corinthians. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Did you get that? Did you see that? If I could have you go back, if you had it in front of you, I would have you circle the words, drift away. And go, gone away, gone astray, turned away, led astray. Isaiah 53, this uh, probably one of the most uh, powerful prophetic chapters in all the scripture, foretelling of our Savior, our Messiah, says that we are, we're like sheep. You come to church to be encouraged, don't you? you you're, the goal is for you to, to leave here and to be inspired, to go away feeling a little bit better by yourself, about yourself. Is that, isn't that the goal? You, you want to you go away feeling a little bit better about yourself? You guys are scared of me, aren't you? Some of just theologically, you know, that's, it sounds good, it sounds American, but it just isn't good, is it? Some of you just scared to shake your head. The preacher might call you out, right? The scripture says that you and I are like sheep. Now, why would the Bible liken us to some woolly creature that roamed the Judean hillside? Because we're frail, we're vulnerable, we're accident prone, and it's just so easy for us to wander. We drift away, we go astray, we're led astray, we turn away. The scripture tells us. The question for us, and this is the, 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 the church, this, I want this to be the heartbeat of our church. Do we know how to get back home? Do we, know, do we know how to tell others how to return home? When, when I'm being sucked into the world, into the world system, when I'm being controlled by anger, when the lights are switching on the church, as our sound guy's learning how to operate this newfangled equipment, is it, it's just easy when, when I feel like I've drifted, like I've turned away, like I've gone astray, like I've lost my way. Do I know, do I know his way, not my, not my selfish way. Do I know his way how to get back home? When, when I lived in San Diego for a number of years, married a girl from out there, and I remember uh, foolishly uh, joining a friend to learn to surf. I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be living out here, so I might as well learn to surf, right? Do, do as do as they do, be as the Romans are in Rome, right? And there I was learning to surf. And I remember one time when I got on a surfboard and headed out to the beach, I left um, my phone and keys and some of my personal belongings uh, close to a lifeguard stand. And we went out for about an hour or two of, of surfing. And when I went back to get my cell phone and keys, I went to that spot and to pick it up and it wasn't there. It was just someone else's cell phone, someone else's keys, about started a rumble on the beach. And I realized unwittingly that I had drifted, that I was at a lifeguard stand, I was at that beach, but I was at the wrong lifeguard station. 
And that can be our lives. We can, we can be in the midst of it. We can be doing our thing and then we, 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 we end up. We end up somewhere where we never thought we would be. Uh, unintended results, consequences that we find ourselves living in. Well, how can we? Cheap. How can we find our way back home? To, to cast a net, I would say, what ways do we find ourselves drifting? What ways do we find ourselves uh, being turned away, being led astray? Now, the enemy, uh, the Bible calls our enemy, the one who is cunning, as it says in 2 Corinthians, it calls our enemy the, the adversary, the accuser, the author of confusion, the master of deceit. And we find ourselves being turned away in so many ways. We can, we can drift uh, in our mission. Do you realize that churches can drift? Do you realize we can start off as a group of people who are on mission, who have a clear, compelling vision of what we ought to be, of what God's called us to, and then if we're not careful, we get off that. We get off that. There's, there's a mission drift. We start talking about carpet and things, and we start infighting. Things that really don't matter become very important to us. The church becomes about us. We walk in and we say, nobody greeted me today. There's a different way to think about that. Instead of walking in and saying, nobody greeted me today, you could say, who can I greet? Who can I greet? I know a friend who walked into a large church. Some of you say, well, you know, the church is growing. I don't, I don't like a church that's growing. We're hearing that already. We're hearing that, that well, the church is, it's growing. And I want to say to you, I want to remind you, when the gospel is preached, when people love on each other, what does that do? Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will you know my disciples. If we love each other well, it's gonna, there's going to be a magnet to it. We're going to draw people. Nobody's trying to be mega. Nobody's trying to be bureaucratic or fancy or cold. But when, when, a, when a church is preaching the gospel and living it out, it's going to bear fruit and it's going to increase. But in the, as we grow, it's just easy to begin to think. It's about me. And I know a friend who walked into a large church years ago. I, I think about this often. And they walked in and they had that feeling, that kind of that cloud that came over them. They said, I don't know anybody here. I'm, I'm sitting in the balcony and there's a lot of people here. How do I get to know people? And that very day when the closing song was sung, they walked up to some people and they said, hey, we're inviting some people over to our house for bacon and tomato sandwiches. Would you like to join us? Now, that very day, some of those folks said yes. And to this day, some of those folks are among their best friends. It's easy for a church to drift from its mission. We, we've said that our chief values are gospel enjoyment. Straight from Acts 9.31, the church, when, they, when the church was following Christ, it grew. It went to Judea and Samaria and Galilee. It began to grow, and it said they enjoyed peace with one another. They built each other up. They continued to walk in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We want to enjoy the gospel. We want to be intentional with mission. We want to be prayer, intentional in the community and prayerful in our mission. That's important for us, but have we drifted? We rejoice that God has given us a permanent home. We've secured that. But are we living on mission? And what is the danger? We can drift as a people missionally. We can drift as a people morally. Do you know sometimes, many times, your strength can be where the enemy works in your life. The very thing that God has gifted you in, can, it can lead to drift. 
a turning away. A, a, teaching, a teaching or wisdom gift can turn to pride. A leadership gift can, can turn over into uh, control. Even compassion, I've found, can be a source of pride for many people. Today, I wonder if your life's off point. I wonder if you've been surfing in the open water and you've come back to kind of find something that's no longer there. You're trying to find your way, trying to find your way home. We can drift in our relationships, we can drift morally. A pastor friend I know tells a story to all young Christian leaders who will listen. He's talking to men about our great temptation. He tells a story about how his, his church in Kentucky began to grow. He, he wanted to make sure that he was accessible to people. And he would stay, he would stay long. I, I do that here at Fonder. And I, I'll stay here as long as the last person wants to talk today. And this pastor would do that, and they instituted a Wednesday night service. And he remembered this one woman would come up for prayer a lot, and then she would be waiting for him in the lobby. And he would talk to her in the, in the, in the midst of other people. And then one night he um, went up to his office after a service to grab some things before he left, and she was sitting in his chair. She swung around in that chair and walked toward him. She looked into his eyes, and she said, You know, preacher, nobody would know. He talked to her for a little bit, several minutes, got his stuff and got out of there. And he tells this group of young Christian leaders, he said, guys, I passed the test, but I didn't get an A. And it's easy for us to drift. It's easy for us to, to slide into compromise and weakness. And the enemy will... He'll have a field day with us. Several months ago, I remember watching a man on TV, on Fox television. This man was a, a, had a lion. He had a pet lion, as in king of the jungle. And he was walking this lion around on a leash like it was his uh, German shepherd. And the camera caught this pet lion of his taking a swipe at the guy's girlfriend. In fact, the lion mauled this young lady and could have killed her. And what got me is how surprised people were at this event. Oh, as in a lion, king of the jungle, the apex of predators. How could a lion take a swipe at somebody, right? And some of us, we're, we're living that way right now. Right now, as it relates to our sins. We're thinking that we can give it a cute name and we can carry it around with us and just clean up afterwards. Tell it to sit and stay. But sin is more ferocious and more powerful than some of us today are willing to admit. And this adversary, this, this author of confusion, this master of deception, this foul tempter is described in 1 Peter 5.8 as a roaring lion. That we ought to be sober. We ought to be of sober judgment. We ought to be humble and sober because our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The passage. The passage I want us to look at is in front of you. We'll put it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Oop, let's go 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Do we have time? 
This, we're not preaching marriage today. We're not preaching marriage. I'm going to give you 2 Corinthians. You turn there, and then I'm going to give you 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Y'all want a marriage sermon today? We could do this. There we go. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When someone you meet at lunch today or later this afternoon that didn't go to church or went to another church says, what did the preacher preach about? You tell him, the preacher said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You got that? They'll say, end of story. Man, that's a walk-off right there. What does that mean? Godly grief. The Bible tells us that not all sorrow, not all grief is the same. You see, we live, we live in this world where it's just so easy to fall away. It's easy for us to make excuses and harder for us to see changes. And the scriptures tell us that not all sorrow, not all grief is the same. Many of your versions, if you open a Bible in front of you, I bet a lot of your versions did, does say the word sorrow. This word grief, we uh, more times than not here in the English Standard Version, is a word that we use after a loss. We're, we're grieving the loss of someone, a broken relationship, or we went to a funeral and we saw grief in mass. It, it's the loss of something. But I think it's a fitting word. Y'all know I love the ESV. And this is a fitting word. I love this rendering of the Greek because, because when we sin, there is a loss. There, there, there is a sorrow. When, when you sin, you, you lose. You lose time. You lose hope. You, you lose patience. You lose self-respect. You lose, lose weeks of sobriety. You, you lose other people's belief in you. And scripture tells us there's a wrong kind of sorrow. There's a, a, a wrong kind of grieving. Not all sorrow is the same. Worldly grief. If you're a note taker, write that down. Write the word, words worldly grief. Worldly grief is what? It's horizontal grief. It's grief. Uh, it, it's when you feel bad about your own pain. There's been a sin named in your life. There's been something that you, you've drifted away from and you've been found out. But this worldly grief, this horizontal grief, only is concerned about being caught. You're not doing it again because you got caught, or you're gonna, you're gonna do it, you're gonna be more careful next time so as not to get caught. Why does the FAA require a flight attendant to tell people not to disable or destroy or tamper with the smoking devices in the laboratory? I'm sure there was a progression. I'm sure there's, hey, no smoking on the airplane. Then several people, probably not just one guy, said, hey, I'll go sneak a smoke in the bathroom, right? Oh, no, no one will catch me. Oh, wait, this device will catch me, so I'll tamper, disable, or destroy this thing, right? I, I, I don't want to get caught. I want to go to a place, to a private place. Have you noticed how sin loves darkness? And this worldly grief is that type of grief. It's horizontal. We, we only care about being caught. That's, it's, it's our pain. Oh no, a wife, she found out. The bills are coming due. The boss called me in the office. The blue light special just pulled me over. I was caught. The concern is with being busted, not with being broken. And that's the difference 
in worldly grief and godly grief. I want to give you three things that can lead to moving away from a life of excuses to a life of real change. Godly grief produces repentance. I want to say three things about the godly grief. First of all, this kind of sorrow, this kind of grief, it, it, it sees. This grief sees. It looks and it sees. Uh, one pastor wrote a book called Aha, A-H-A. The idea is that there's this awareness. You know how you have an aha moment? Maybe you've had one recently. Aha. There's just this uh, sudden burst of clarity. It's the light bulb. It's the flash of insight. It's when something just becomes crystal clear to you and you say, aha, I get it. It, it can produce life change. It can be a destiny maker. And this one writer says the aha, it, it, first of all, it's this awareness. It begins with an awareness. And then it goes, it leads to honesty. And then it leads to action. Aha, awareness, honesty, and action. There's a, a psalm in Psalm 36, I believe. We'll put that up. The wicked, this is talking about the wicked. That's where, before that dot, 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 is the, the psalmist is describing the wicked person. The wicked person flatters himself too much to discover and hate his sin. You know, there's denial. And everybody, everybody gets the concept of a denial. It's when we say, there's nothing there. There is no problem. Don't worry about it. This, this thing that, that you pointed out, this thing, God, you're trying to convict, man, it's just a pet lion. Sit, stay, I'll clean up after the cute little lion. To see sin is to have this awareness. It's Luke chapter 15. It's the story that we love so much about the prodigal. Really, the prodigal God, as Tim Keller would say, but the prodigal son, as most study Bibles delineated, and this man goes off and he takes... Uh, he takes the wealth from his family and goes into uh, riotous, rebellious living and ends up at the end of himself in a pigsty. He partied like it was 1999, came to the end of himself. The Bible says that very thing that he saw, that he came to his senses. He had this awareness. There was, there was no denial. There had been, but there was no denial. Psychologists are also talking today about not just denial, but projection. And projection is a little bit different, and I think maybe more common. I think many of us struggle with it. Projection is when we, we don't deny that there's something there, it's just that we don't accept responsibility for it. These people are very crafty in their apologies. You ever got an apology from somebody, and they seem so sincere? It was so well-worded, like the consummate politician, but you felt bad. You, you, felt, you felt responsible. They apologized to you, but you, re, you felt responsible for what they had done. Ever, ever had that happen to you? It, these people are very crafty, very cunning. Just say, get thee behind me, Satan. That's what I do, right? Just get thee behind, call them out. But projection is so common for us. It's a, it's a step. It seems uh, like a greater level of maturation than denial, but it's, it's deadly and it's as old as Genesis 3. It's as old as the beginning of the book. Godly grief, it sees. Godly grief experiences sorrow. In all the writings of Scripture, when men and women were confronted with something in their life that was far afield from honoring God, they were horrified. They were aghast. They were grief-stricken. 
They saw it as God wanted them to see it. No pet lion, nothing tame here. This is ferocious, and I own it. Godly grief sees, experiences sorrow, and then lastly, I'm going to say it doesn't stuff. A godly grief doesn't stuff. There's appropriate, progressive confession. If the only person in your life who knows everything about you is the person who uses your toothbrush, then you are target A for the enemy. Now I'm assuming, Fonder Church, that you're the only one that uses your toothbrush. Just nod your head. Let me, you know, I'm a germ freak. Just let me feel good about everybody here, okay? That's, you're the only one that uses your own toothbrush, right? And this idea of confession has really been given a bad rap. I, I remember years ago seeing a president, the 41st president of the United States in Japan at a, a, with the prime minister. And he was sitting at this, I mean, a lot of dignitaries and luminaries. He was sitting around this um, with heads of state. And out of nowhere, he, he got sick and didn't feel well. And the first president, George Bush, who I admire greatly, who just jumps out of airplanes into his 90s now, um, he threw up on the Japanese prime minister, just unloaded dinner right there on his lap. And they, thank God, social media didn't exist those years ago. But man, we, some of us saw that. It's like, oh, how disgusting, how embarrassing. And for some of you, you think that's what confession is. It's just, it's throwing something up on somebody and they don't want it. And everybody around you gets sick. Stuff it. Keep it to yourself. And I pray that as a, as a people that we can grow strong in this area of confession. The contemporary churches have gone so casual with it. Come late, leave early, don't really get involved. Have a consumer mindset when it comes to church. Confession, there's no place for it. And then some have gone so far on the other end, the misunderstanding of the Catholic faith is make it professional, make it with a, a guy in a collar, make it something formal. And we miss this idea when James 5 says, if someone's sick, we ought to pray for them. And that we really find emotional healing and mental well-being. We, we have a life that gives life to other people to the extent that we can confess our sins one to another. You guys know I'll listen to some of your sin. I'm available. I'll talk to you. I'll process with you. I am one man that sometimes has insight. And sometimes I don't. But I pray. It's why we say often get out of rows and into circles. And this may scare some of you. Some of you in the background, I'll see, see, honey, that's why I'm not going to join a small group because I want to confess my sins. You don't have to confess your sins, at least not week one. That comes week two and three. <laughs> when they turn the light bulb on you, it's Gestapo tactics, right? And they just turn that on you and you have to no. Join a group. Perfect time of year. New groups are starting. Circle up with people. You won't be called on to pray or read scripture if you're not comfortable. Every group leader knows not to call someone out if they're not comfortable. But even in a group, I've been in groups that are large, and even in a group of 12 people or 14 guys, uh, you have to spend time outside that time. But you begin to learn who you can be comfortable with and who you can share life with. Godly sorrow is different than worldly sorrow. That kind of grief, that worldly grief, man, it leads to death. It leads to projecting an image, posturing, 
pretending, managing a reputation. I want to say this. I've never sat down with someone in our church or any friend ever and had them share something deep, confess a struggle where I've gotten up and thought less of them than I did before. I can't think of one time. And every time a man will sit down with me and share something, every single time I can think of, I want to, I want to get closer to that guy because there's something beautiful that happens when we realize, when we get past the bravado and we realize that we're all strugglers. And you see this idea of confession ought to be as common as the sunrise. Why then do we treat it like a solar eclipse? I might, if the, if it, if the worst case scenario occurs, if this thing keeps on sliding, it keeps on sliding, and there's no other way out, then and only then will I tell somebody. Bill Bright, the late Bill Bright, was my spiritual mentor, the man who's meant more to me than any other man who's ever lived. I believe God used Bill Bright in the ministry of Campus Crusade, they call it crew now, to take the gospel to more people in the world than anybody ever. And Bill Bright had a concept called spiritual breathing, exhaling and inhaling. Exhaling is when we confess the things that aren't right about us. And inhaling is when we appropriate the power of his Holy Spirit to receive that forgiveness so that we can, we can get back up, so that we can understand the story of the prodigal is he didn't go home to a stern dad, a, a stern dad who said, why aren't you like the older brother who was here and faithful? No, he killed the fattest calf. He ran out and gave him a robe and gave him a kiss. Guys did that back then. And he celebrated with them. And that, Jesus says, is the God that we serve. Godly grief it sees, it has sorrow, and it doesn't stuff it. It learns appropriately to let it out. Aha. I pray that God gives us, that he'll give you an awareness of where you need to grow, of what's stopping you from growing. There are times I get cynical about the Christian community, of which I'm a part of, of which I'm a leader in. And there are times I think that we struggle with the truth more than anybody because we always want to be nice. We always want to be appropriate. And us journeying together has got to be far more messy and thus far more beautiful than we have ever imagined. We're great at making excuses and not so great about seeing our lives change. Today, I want to challenge you to live in community, to be open to whatever aha moment God wants to give you in your life. To not to flatter yourself like the wicked man where you don't see it and where you hide it. But God will give you an awareness and there's no denial, you see it. And there's no projection, you see it and you own it. And therefore, God will give you what he calls the gift of walking in the light. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are a people that drift away. 
Hebrews 2, 1 tells us we drift away because we're not paying attention. We're not paying closer attention to the words that we have heard. The prophet Isaiah tells us that we're like sheep. We've, we've grown, gone astray. We've, we've turned away. And Paul to the church at Corinth says that he's concerned that just as the deceiver in his cunning ways got to Adam and Eve that he can get to us. He can, he can allow our thoughts to lead us astray. And Lord, your vision for us is a life of confession. It's a life of community. It's a life where we truly circle up. And Lord, some are so frustrated by recurrent sins. For some in the room, that word grief in the ESV is so, so much more powerful even than the word sorrow because uh, there's been a tremendous loss in time, in hope, in self-respect, maybe even in sobriety. Lord, I pray that you meet us as a church family. That we wouldn't just try to grow in terms of filling a building in a parking lot. But Lord, you would, you would give us this beautiful qualitative growth that our, our lives would lead. That this godly grief that we experience would lead to repentance. That leads to salvation without regret. Lord, you reign supreme even over the regrets in this room. You, you can speak in forgiveness to people who've blown it to people who still keep pulling stuff up from way back when. Lord, speak over your people today. Speak grace into their lives in a manifold way, in a way that only you can do. And to those who've veered off course, whether it's being sucked into this world or controlled by anger or just separated in relationships. Lead them, lead us, lead us back home to a salvation, to a life without regrets. God, do your work in Jesus we pray. Amen.